hope you all are rejoicing in God's goodness. And amidst even of life's challenges, uh, God is the one who is our strength, our refuge, and our hope. I'm grateful to be here. I don't know all of you personally and couldn't recite all of your names, but I'm grateful for the intersections of life we've had and, and what God's doing in and through you for his glory here in the San Jose area. I'm thankful for lighthouses, broadly speaking, bodies of believers that are wanting to honor their great and awesome God by how they demonstrate who God is and what he does in clear and vivid ways to each other and to the world around you. And I understand it's not easy. There are tough times, but praise God, his spirit enables us to be and do much more than we could on our own. So it's a blessing to be here. Thankful to be a small part of Mark and Julie's life and the blessing they are to me. And uh, thank you for just your kindness. We're going to look at Psalm 73 this morning. Um, and, and I ask in that, that, about that chapter, as you see in your notes, is God enough? Before I look at that, let's just pray for a moment. I do thank you, Father, that you are a great and awesome God. That you are unparalleled, incomparable, you are amazing full of grace and mercy and love, demonstrating that to us and sending your son to live a sinless life and die a horrific death and rise from the dead, send to your right hand to provide us that salvation we so desperately need. And beyond that, I'm thankful for your daily expressions of love, mercy, and grace as we live life. I do pray that you would help us grasp your word today in ways that impact how we think and live, how we can be a blessing to others. I do pray that you would, through your spirit, help us to see these truths in your word and be encouraged, rebuked, be challenged, be blessed. And I pray that you'd hide your servant behind the cross. Help us, Father, to realize that no matter how Good or how hard life is, you are totally enough. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's a blessing that God has given us his word to help us understand him better. But even though we have his word, there are too many Christ followers who misunderstand who God promised to be and what he promised to do on behalf of his followers, you and me. Some of us can have the expectation that God has kind of obligated himself to pour out material blessings on his faithful servants. And the other side of the coin of that assumption is that he always protects us from severe difficulties and he severely judges the wicked. And it can be quite a shock for us when God doesn't act in accordance with those personal expectations. And even sometimes more challenging when he sees to send hardships our way. How is that good? Understanding that, what life experience could prove quite shocking for a believer, lofty-hearted, trying to serve the Lord? Well, the suffering of the righteous and the apparent abundance of the wicked is a tough pill to swallow. And the writer of this psalm, Asaph, writes of his struggles with some of the age-old questions that we even face today. Why is there evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? And is it worth it to be a believer in the midst of an upside-down, topsy-turvy world? 
See for Asaph, where we were going to see here that his faith and his experience were like signposts pointing in opposite directions. The apparent discrepancy between what he heartily believed and what he saw and experienced was quite difficult for him. Rest assured, all of us have are or will experience life challenges and it can, it can involve a number of different things. A sudden death of someone we love, abrupt discovery of a terminal disease, experience of some calamity like an earthquake or, or hurricane, surprising loss of a job, and on the list goes on. We are all going to have or are in the midst of difficult circumstances. But here's what I'm interested in today for your life and for mine is when a tragedy or difficult circumstance enters our life, how are we going to respond? Well, we have a few options that people normally do. One is to ask, why me? After all, I'm trying to serve my God faithfully. Why not that guy? The bum. The unfaithful person. Some choose to become enraged by what they see around them. Our experience of affliction is difficult enough, but why does it seem that the wicked around us seem to sin without consequence. And our, our, our experience of difficulty can sometimes open the door to a flood of negative thoughts and emotions about God and his plan for the world. It's not fair. Why me? And some just hold it all in and pretend that everything is okay. Someone asks them, how are you? They glibly say, I'm fine, but they're about to self-destruct on the inside because it's a hard, too hard of a load for them to bear. What would God have us do in that situation? And you have in your notes a key idea. When we experience traumatic circumstances in life, God desires that we evaluate our situation in light of who he is, which I can assure you is not overnight. But we need to be able to look at our circumstance in light of who he is and let him, his word, his intentions, his promises, each day give us grace and strength to percolate let those truths percolate into our hearts. He wants us to continue pursuing life for his glory in the midst of those trials by means of what he's actually promised us, not by what we've set him up for, not the false expectations we have. He does not want us to give our primary attention to the difficulties around us. Instead, he wants us to understand the challenges in our lives from his perspective. Let him define a response. Let him encourage our hearts. Let him be the example in a flawed world. He wants us to understand the challenges in our life from his perspective. He asks that we view our challenging circumstances in light of who he is and what he does and what he promises. So in our psalm for today, Psalm 73, Asaph provides us a, a brief glimpse, a window into his experience of those life-crunching emotions that followed trouble. After giving us his theological foundation, he, he goes on to the heart of his struggle. He summarizes the, the near knockout punch delivered by his harsh realities. And then, praise God, he concludes by demonstrating the means for his victory over his agonizing trial, what and who he knew God to be. God would be and do all that he promised to be and do, Asaph realized. He will always be and do what's right. It's as if Asaph poses the question, is God enough? And he says at the end, he is indeed. So let's look at Asaph's problem. Verses 1 to 12, the abundance of the wicked. 
He starts with this theological foundation, God is good. Verse 1, God is indeed good to Israel to the pure in heart. He believed this. God's goodness is one of those traits that form a central part of God's character. I'll read some verses here. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 86, 5, you are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. 100, verse 5, for the Lord is good, his loyal love endures forever, and he's faithful through all generations. 106, 1, praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his loyal, loyal love endures forever. 119.68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. 136.1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loyal love endures forever. Praise God that he's good. The general principle that Asaph enthusiastically embraced was that God is and does good. Asaph wants us to know what he believed before this challenging episode and where he ended up. He wants his readers, you and, I, you and me, to grasp the important lesson he learned in that in-between part where he started, God is good, where he ended, God is good, as God gave him victory over those things that made him wonder if that was true. So his theological foundation, God is good, and he does good. His problem, verses 2 to 3, life stinks. He, uh, the verse begins in verse 2, the severity of his dilemma he says, but as for me, when he, when he says, but as for me, he's shifting attention from God to himself. He has just said God is good to those who, who love him, who pursue purity. But he wants to transition our thoughts to realizing that God, that is, that's what he believes, God is good. But as for me, life stinks. He, he, this is what he believes is true about God. God is good. But now he turns to tell us about his deep and personal pain and agony. My feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. Asaph is saying to us that this experience which I'm about to relate to you almost knocked me off my feet spiritually. And to understand this idea of footing, we need to think about a few other passages in this section of the Bible, wisdom, poetic literature. You see, for example, in Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3, the psalmist's trust in Yahweh and the Lord resulted in him having solid footing. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay, poor footing. And he set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Sure footing is what a believer wants to have. And for Asaph, he almost lost that. Proverbs 1 to 9, the contrast between a, a, a righteous or a wise individual and a foolish or a wicked individual is expressed by a number of metaphors. You know, what kind of a heart and uh, what kind of a walk you have. You see, in Proverbs, the wise person, unlike the New Testament analogy of narrow is the road that leads to life and broad is the way it leads to destruction, in, in the wisdom literature, a wise person, a righteous person, walks on a wide road that's well lit, that's free from obstacles. There's no chance to stumble. They have security of footing. They're stable. They're, because they're anchored in God and his character. So Asaph here describes the severity of his dilemma by telling us that he'd almost undone Psalm 40, almost lost his footing, was stumbling over the boulders of life. And why? What was it that brought about this dilemma? 
The, the occasion for his dilemma in verse 3, it says, For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The word envy is the same word as the verb for jealous, to be jealous. He's about to tell us what he wanted for himself. And this is not the good jealousy of our great God. God is appropriately jealous for the exclusive relationship with his followers, that they would worship no other God but him. He's jealous for that. It's appropriate for a husband and wife to expect the exclusive love and intimacy of their spouse. That's, there's, a, there's an appropriate kind of jealousy. But what triggers the kind of jealousy that Asaph refers to here? Just imagine your kids playing with somebody else's kids and there's a toy, a contested toy. That's the jealousy we're talking about. What triggers this jealousy, it says... I envy the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There was a horizontal focus. Not a vertical focus, a horizontal focus. What he saw going on around him. I want that. And he envied that. Here's a key truth that Asaph and we must learn because it'll happen in life along the way. What is happening around us or even to us, never tells the whole story about what God is doing or who he is. Let me just say that again. What is happening around us or to us never tells the whole story about what God is doing or who he is. Don't let that define your understanding of who he is and what he intends to do. We should never make conclusions about who God is or determine in some final way that what God's plan is and whether it's fair based upon our life experiences. No, God's word and this description of God's character and plan should be where we turn as we experience tough times. And we'll come later to the reality that that doesn't mean it's a change overnight, that life can still be hard. But there's a growing embracing of a biblical definition of who he is, what he wants to accomplish. And that involves tough times. So what was it in life that grabbed his attention? What did he see around him? Prosperity. I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That, that word is, I don't toss Hebrew words around just for fun, but shalom, we, it's kind of like chow, or other words, it's a word for peace, quite often. But, but really, the, the, the word shalom, this Hebrew word, is more than peace. It means more than just basic peace, it, or the absence of trouble. It signifies well-being. Bodily health, completeness, contentedness, fullness. He saw the shalom, the fullness of the wicked. In the midst of his dilemma, Asaph concluded that the wicked are enjoying life with a capital L. They had what he thought he wanted and maybe thought he deserved for himself. And this caused them to feel envious of their abundant blessing. Now think of it. Asaph was apparently facing severe difficulties. It did not seem to him that he was experiencing the goodness of God. And then he noticed another shocking truth. From everything he could see, the men and women around him that were leading lives of wickedness were enjoying great blessings. That's what it seemed to be. And he confessed that there was a moment in the midst of his difficulty when he is one of God's eternally blessed children. When he is one of God's eternally blessed children, envied was jealous of the ungodly. 
But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, my steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. As a faithful servant of God, he expected, a, a, to a degree, a life of bliss and happiness. Instead, there were several difficulties that came his way. And then in addition to that, he observed that the people who had no regard for God seemed to have the very blessings he'd expected for himself. And it's almost knocked him off his feet spiritually. So we've seen his theological foundation and a short explanation of his problem in verses 1 to 3. And now we come to verses 4 to 12, a longer version of his struggle. The wicked are well off, verses 4 to 12. In the next several verses of the psalmist gives us more details about his life situation that brought about his perplexity. The wicked seem to live carefree lives and have no concerns about the future. They have what he wants, it seems. So first of all, the wicked seem to live above the frustrations of life, verses 4 and 5. They have an easy time until they die. Their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. From Asaph's perspective, it appears they have it all. Everything's going well for the wicked. Life's troubles don't exist for them. Imagine no flat tires, no leaky roofs, no pimples or warts, no painful joints, and on the list could go. Seems like they're all above that. They're just having a great time. But they don't know what the problem is. And not only do the wicked seem to live above the normal customary frustrations of life in verses 4 and 5, but in verses 6 to 7, these same people have all the wrong things at the core of their being. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. They're puffed up with pride. The wicked are wearing their pride for all to see. They flaunt their self-importance and their arrogance for all to observe. And it seems to be a violation of God's general standard, but they're getting away with it. At the end of verse 6, Violence covers them like a garment. They leave a trail of violence wherever they go. And what kind of violence is this in the Old Testament? These wicked people gain much of their material prosperity through scheming and plotting against fellow Israelites, their own people. If you want to get a glimpse of this, read Amos and Micah. They have some sad accounts in there about the way people were eating up, the wicked people were eating up other Israelites. The wicked here resort to violence to take what's not theirs. They live at the expense of others while they seem to enjoy cha-ching, cha-ching, right? Abundance. Another thing that galls Asaph in verses 8 to 10 is their, spirit, their, their speech demonstrates, advertises the arrogance of their hearts. They mock. They speak maliciously. They threaten, they arrogantly threaten oppression. So they're scoffing, blaspheming, threatening. Verse 9, they set their mouths against heaven. Their tongues strut across the earth. They talk big, self-exalting, arrogance and pride on display. They acted as if they controlled heaven and owned the earth. And even drawing a crowd. Therefore his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. We want that too. It just seems to be confusing to Asaph and in verse 11 they have little respect for God now they're not denying God's existence it seems here but they're sure limiting God's knowledge the wicked say how could can God know 
Does the Most High know everything? So they loudly announced that God doesn't really know everything. God doesn't care about their vile dealings among God's people. We can pursue our lives by our definition with impunity because after all, God doesn't care. He's not crimping our style. That's what it seemed to Asaph was true. That they could, sure, God's out there, but he lets us live the way we want to live and, and we're being blessed. In verse 12, we kind of have a summary of this longer version of his struggle that the wicked are well off. Verse 12, look at them, the wicked, they're always at ease and they increase their wealth. I mean, they're sitting by the pool eating grapes or they're, you know, just having all kinds of abundance without any challenges. And that brings Asaph to a challenging conclusion. Yes, these are people who seem to be enjoying the very blessings that Asaph believed should have been his as a loyal follower of God. And that brings Asaph to a painful conclusion. Maybe I have all things wrong. <laughs> Maybe I'm just pursuing God things for the birds. So this leads to some introspection for Asaph. And so we have the next section, verses 13 to 17, where you're looking inward, and then at the end, looking upward, verses 13 to 17. The hardest part of this section is verses 13 to 16. Surely I have been good for nothing. I have been good for no personal benefit. And, 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 and friends, here is something we all must watch out for. By focusing on how ungodly people flourish around us, believers can begin to doubt the value of their commitment to living righteously in the world. It doesn't pay much. It doesn't have the reward. Those guys seem to pursue wickedness and sin and have everything. And we can begin to forget about eternity and look at something more immediate. So Asaph questioned the value of pure living, verses 13 and 14. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands and innocent for nothing? For I'm afflicted all day long and punished every morning. Is all this attention to my walk with God a waste of time? Is keeping a heart pure a futile effort? Look what it brought me. One commentary wrote, Asaph is saying that his life committed to God seemed without substance or value when he compared it to the full life of the ungodly. I'm wasting my time. See, from Asaph's perspective, various things in his life were not adding up. It appears he thought that my diligence and my walk with the Lord would result in some measure of peace and abundance. Well, from Asaph's perspective, in reality, he was experiencing something different. My diligence and my walk with God brought me the apparent absence of abundance and peace. Not only has Asaph found himself in a miserable situation, but the wicked around him seemed to have what he wanted for himself. Shalom, completeness, fullness, abundance. And then beyond that in verse 14 when he talks about I'm afflicted all day long and punished every morning. This was Asaph's reality. He thinks the wicked have no struggles and I'm struggling day and night. He witnessed and experienced this agony during his waking hours walking around and seeing the wicked people with full pockets and then had nightmares about it during his sleep, day and night, affliction. Now I realize that as readers of the psalm, 
if we're thinking biblically, we as can see something Asaph doesn't seem to realize at this point in time in the midst of this psalm. He doesn't realize that he's thinking like a practical atheist. As if there is no God and there is no heaven. As if all that matters is in this life or at this moment. What am I getting out of my walk with God? How is my experience of suffering right and good? Why isn't God pouring good and marvelous things into my life here and now? When our life is overrun by challenging times, given our sinful natures, our tendency might be to sink into the muck of self-pity. We fail to remember the big or the eternal picture. And we'll talk more about this in a few minutes. But this is where Asaph finds himself, questioning the value of purely living. And, and, and can, you, can you see him just hanging there at the end of the rope? Losing his grip, verses 15 and 16. First of all, he, he keeps his battle all inside, verse 15. He, he says here, if I decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. He, he was afraid that if he let his emotions run free and, and voice them to other Israelites, he would bring them the same disillusionment he's struggling with, cause them to stumble with him. So he just kept it all inside. And then verse 16, you can just feel the angst. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. So what are his options? He seems like he's at the end of his rope. His options are either to turn away from God or turn to God. So let's go on to consider the, the upward part of this section. Verse first part, surely have been good for no personal benefit. Verses 13 and 14, now it's God and his plan make all the difference. Verse 17. This storm raged in Asaph's soul until he entered God's sanctuary. What what does he mean by this statement? And that's the $64,000 question here. Well, let let me ask you some questions and answer them. To what does Asaph refer by the term the sanctuary of God? Well, it's Israel's structure for worship, the tabernacle at a certain period of time, and then the temple, where Israel was to worship God according to his definitions. And what was it that made this structure, this building, not just a building, but sanctified, set apart, pure? Was it because it was associated with Israel, God's chosen people? Uh, No, of course not. The presence of the Lord's glory in the Holy of Holies Rising above that building made this structure a sanctified place, a set-apart place, a sanctuary. It's God's presence that transforms this building into a meeting place between God and his people. And what does Asaph finally realize here when he entered, until I entered God's sanctuary? Now I grant you, I understand that that I'm reading between the lines at this point, and I can't say for sure what exactly triggered this change of Asaph's thinking, but imagine with me what might have gone through Asaph's mind as you're picturing what's going on here. Both the tabernacle and the temple had an area around the temple building itself. The temple building had, of course, two rooms, the holy place up front, the holy of holies at the back, but then priests, Levites, and men could walk around that temple building near some other pieces of furniture that are outside of that building with freedom to worship the Lord. So as imagine what was going on through Asaph's mind, this battle is raging in Asaph's thought as he enters the court of the temple to worship 
Yahweh, a regular part of a believing Israelite's life. And he walks near what's called the brass laver, a big circular uh, basin of water for ritual purification for the priests as they're offering sacrifices. And he, and he would have gone by the altar, burnt offering, a large square altar on which the various sacrifices brought were burned or part of them was burned as an offering to the Lord. And, 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 and the thing is, as he walks nearing the brass laver and the altar burnt offering, elements of Yahweh's worship that pictured, that pictured an amazing reality their covenant Lord providing forgiveness to his followers. So he's walking by that, maybe thinking about what's going on there. He's witnessing the sacrifice of various animals that are being put to death to provide atonement for a fellow Israelite who'd sinned. He walks in the courtyard area around the temple building itself and he can see the pillar of cloud that rises above that impressive structure, above the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Remember that this pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night provided God's people flawless guidance throughout their travels from Egypt to the promised land as they would camp at a place when it was time to move, the Shekinah glory would rise above the Holy of Holies and motor off in the distance and then they'd unpack and, or they'd pack up and get ready to go and then follow the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night to the intended destination for the next stop. Flawless guidance. It was, it was God in their midst. It was the presence of God that you were there seeing visually. It wasn't all that God was. But God was concretely, tangibly revealing himself in their midst. The one caring for them. The one who guides them. The one who provides for them. That pillar of cloud called the Shnazi term is the Shekinah glory. But Shekinah means to dwell or the residing or dwelling glory. It's that glory of the Lord. That visible presentation of God's character that shows he was dwelling in their midst. So it's a part of pursuing a relationship with his people. Not just dumping laws on them, but as part of pursuing a relationship with his people, he chose to dwell in the midst of them. He cared for them. So Asaph is walking around the temple courtyard, seeing these elements of heartfelt worship of the great God of the universe. And at the same time, his heart is feeling the agony of life's challenges. And he's contemplating the painful enigma of his personal troubles and the apparent prosperity of the wicked. And then at some point in time, as he's in the vicinity of the temple, God's sanctuary, he realizes where he is and what it signifies. It's kind of like if I had a video of this, he just kind of stops abruptly. An important truth strikes him, or a set of truths. Maybe as he's standing near the Holy of Holies above which rises the visible presence of God, he, he comprehends, he, in a way that affects his heart, he comprehends the power and comfort of God's presence. He's uplifted by the fact that God is with us. Asaph is encouraged by the truth that the Almighty God has entered into an intimate personal relationship with his followers, with the Israelites, with Asaph. Not only were human beings able to enter into a relationship with this unparalleled God of the universe, but they had the means of maintaining that relationship, the hope of receiving forgiveness of sins. The sacrifices that Asaph could see being offered around him were visible reminders of that glorious truth. Asaph realized that God adds a divine and eternal dimension to life. It isn't all about my trouble today or tomorrow. It isn't all about things on this world. 
Praise God, there's a God in heaven who longs to work in us and through us for his glory and to help us be encouraged by who he is and what he does and his ultimate plan that he wins. And then you have the other side of the coin in verse 17. Until I entered God's sanctuary, then I understood their destiny. He's talking about the wicked. The wicked in Asaph's world seem, seem to have abundance, fullness, and absence of difficulties. But there's one thing or better, one person they don't have. They don't have a personal relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, with the one and only true God, with the unparalleled God of the universe who introduces eternal dimensions and infinite dimensions into life through salvation. They don't enjoy the forgiveness of sins. They don't have confidence of spending eternity with God. Here's the fundamental point in my mind that provided Asaph with victory. He began to see things from God's perfect, eternal perspective rather than evaluating life from his own limited and sinful worldview. Here's something else that's important for, we, for us to realize as Asaph is walking around the courtyard of the temple. It's essential to notice that at that moment, when he realized these truths, there was no change to his challenging circumstances. Kind of life still stunk, humanly speaking. He still had challenges. The wicked people around him still seem to have abundance. Instead, a huge change that happens takes place in his perception of those circumstances. It doesn't matter in the end. With God is on the throne. With a God who's a great and awesome God who's perfect. With a God who offers us refuge and strength. With a God who assures our eternity, who provides us forgiveness. It doesn't matter because he's in charge. Asaph's crisis resulted from its limited temporal perspective on the events of the world around him. In the sanctuary near the visible presence of God, Asaph began to see things more from an eternal divine perspective. You know, it's true, one pastor wrote something that captures the key idea. He wrote this, it's only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. Because we think about them ultimately from the eternal perspective. So looking inward and looking upward, at the end of his rope, seemed hopeless. He entered the sanctuary of God and realized that God makes all the difference and doesn't always change our circumstances, but gives us the ability to look at those circumstances through the lens of his wisdom and strength. And then verses 18 to 28, praise God, we see life according to Asaph's experience from God's perspective. And that transforms his heart and his thoughts, 18 to 28. He, he first of all tells us that he recognizes God's ultimate justice, verses 18 to 20. He also comprehends that God will accomplish his purposes for the wicked according to his timetable. And it isn't just a payback idea. I want them guys to get crushed. It's, it's kind of God's character that's at stake. They're dragging God's character through the mud by their wickedness, having being an Israelite and yet dragging his name through the mud. And it just doesn't seem to make any sense that that can happen. 
18 and 19. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away like a flood by terrors. Like one walking, waking from a dream, Lord. When arising, you will despise their image. In the end, the evil, evil is not and never will be ultimately victorious. Asaph, the one who had almost slipped back in verse 2, realizes that God will put the wicked on a slippery surface, verse 18. They're the ones that will slip. The wicked who experience what seemed like prosperity, shalom, fullness, abundance, contentedness, completeness, verse 3, will face eternal destruction in verses 18 and 19. The wicked are doomed to fall. When God calls the wicked to account for the many acts of treachery, they'll be washed away as if in a flash flood. Verse 19. What Asaph understood in God's sanctuary was totally different. What he understood being in God's sanctuary was totally different than what he thought about the wicked before. God had changed his heart and his, and his mind. He was thinking from God's perspective, not his misunderstood your selfish perspective. He had thought they were totally free from the threat of death and the problems of life. Asaph realized that the when was not as important as the certainty of what God would do with the wicked. Like Nahum 1.3 wrote, the Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. And again, that's not fundamentally payback. It's Vindicating God's righteousness. Not blemishing his name by being an Israelite and yet dragging his character through the mud of sin and wickedness. Then he has his little self-critique where he says, The envy of the wicked was foolish. I was a dummy, 21 to 22. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, first part of the psalm, I was stupid and I didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you. When his heart was grieved and his spirit was embittered, his, his heart crisis caused him to act like a fool. He often likened to an unthinking animal. Psalm 49, 12, and 20 describe men who have riches but not understanding as beasts that perish. Psalm 92, verses 5 and 6. How great are your works, O Lord! How profound your thoughts! The senseless man does not know. Fools do not understand. He said, that was me. I wasn't thinking right. I wasn't looking at the eternal significance of a great God in heaven who's bringing his plan to pass. And I'm just a part of that plan. The psalmist, praise God, doesn't stop where he was, brokenhearted, not, and not really understanding God or his all-wise plan. He presents us with a glimpse of his victory over this dilemma. In verses 23 to 26, Asaph's Celebration of God's presence. Verses 23 to 26, and I'll do it individually. I will, I, but as for me, it's not in most of your translations, but it's in Hebrew. But as for me, I'm always with you, but you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you take me up in glory. Whom do I have in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. So verses 23 to 26, a big change. These verses highlight a God-centered life rather than a self-centered life. And like he said in verse 2, Asaph has, but as for me, it, 
It may not be in your English translation, but regardless, Asaph wants his readers to understand that a major heart change is taking place here. He is not the foolish, earth-focused man that he was. He's a, God's transformed his heart. And notice that most of the statements here refer to God in these verses as a key part of that solution. But the psalmist says, verse 23, Asaph says, I'm always with you, but you hold my right hand. I'm always with you, but you hold me. He focuses on his, his great God upward rather than his circumstances around him outward. It's, you hold me. Yeah, life may be tough. Yeah, things are going that I don't understand around me. Yeah, but I'm going to rest in your goodness. Be encouraged by you. He focuses upward rather than just outward. Verse 24, you guide me through counsel and afterward you will take me up into glory. He, God is the one who guides him and guarantees his destiny. He realizes that who God is and what he does is ultimate truth and totally reliable. Not the ephemeral, ephemeral fading mist of the morning. You see, he realizes life circumstances are temporary and should not dominate his or any believer's life. They're only immediate, short-term issues. Asaph realized that the focus on the immediate distracted him from a pursuit of what was ultimate and eternal and most important. Now, when they talk about them as being temporary and immediate and short-term, unimportant, as opposed to what's most important, something ultimately eternal, I don't mean to be glib. I understand there are life's challenges that are just, can rock our world. It can be super hard. This isn't just knocking some dust off your collar or something. So I'm not trying to be glib and say they're not, in, they're not significant things that are come into our life that can really challenge us. But in the end, the only way we can honor our God as we're called to do is to be able to let him heal our hearts. To let him help us to trust in him being the God he defines himself as. To be able to look at him and say, you are good. Uh, there was a situation in our life, don't need to go into the details, we made a transition in church ministry and and um, it was really hard. There was betrayal involved, and we left quietly. We wanted to honor the Lord in our hearts, but we were broken, my wife and myself. And, uh, and, and it was tough. I'm not an introspective person, my wife is, but I was struggling with constantly going back to the junk, to the rubble, to the hurt, to the betrayal. And so what I started doing, I still do to some degree, when people ask me, how am I? I'll say, God is good. And I'm doing fine. And it wasn't just a glib statement. It was, I was trying to get my head up. I wanted to think about God's goodness, his perfection, his faithfulness, his just amazing grace and mercy. And so, and the healing wasn't immediate. It was probably a couple of years before we were ultimately able to forgive the wrongs and embraced God's providence and weren't struck with the same challenges. The song we sang this morning, Blessed Be Your Name. I still remember crystal clear that we were sitting in the back of our church singing that song. 
Sorry, I didn't plan this. And we're singing that party gives and takes away. And I was crying. I don't cry a lot. And I looked at my wife and she was crying. And we felt the takeaway part a lot more than the gives. But the good news is, is that next part of the song says that the giving the takeaway is part of this great God who is bringing his plan to pass, which is awesome. And so what we have to do is we have to be able to, whatever your significant life issues are, I'm not trying to be glib about them. I just want you to know that looking up is the only solution we have. You don't want to have a poisoned heart. You don't want to have brokenness that is ongoing. You want to see that God is indeed good. He's the best. He's awesome. He's amazing. He's merciful and gracious. He's our our refuge and strength. He helps us to be who he can't be on our own. That's one of the reasons I pray regularly that the Lord, by your spirit, I pray to help me to be who I much more than I could be and help me to do much more than I can do because I don't have what it takes to live the life you set before me. So Asaph realized that the focus on the immediate distracted him from what was ultimate and eternal and most important. Praise God. Verse 24, he looks up and said, he's just out. Verse 25, God captivates me. Who, who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. He said, begins this verse with a rhetorical question and that assumes a negative answer. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And the resounding answer would be, no one but you, God. And he goes on and says the same thing with a positive statement. I desire no one but you on earth. Notice a couple things with me about the verse. First of all, Asaph and these two clauses, whom do I have in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth but you are there for a special reason. They're, the snazzy word for them is a merism. That's where an author takes two somewhat opposite words to emphasize totality. It's like saying, I learned the material for tomorrow's test from A to Z. A woman might say, I cleaned my house from top to bottom. In Revelation, it says that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last words of the Greek alphabet. He's everything. The psalmist here mentions the heavens and the earth to emphasize that his great God is the sole object, the primary object and the sole object of his desire and worship in the entire universe. Only him. I'm going to notice the second thing about this verse. Asaph's desire to know and serve God allowed for no other rivals for his affection. And that perspective was a key to his experiencing victory in the midst of his pain and agony. Do you remember what he said in verse 13? Maybe all this attention to my walk with God is worthless. Why would any believer say something like that? Because friends, at that moment, the crucible, the challenge, the difficult things in our life, at that moment we can allow something or someone else to be more important to us than God. Asaph's play came to the place where his captivation with God was not only comprehensive, the entire universe, but exclusive, God alone. God captivates me. And that was part of his healing. That was part of his heart transformation. Then God strengthens me, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. 
Asaph seemed to be saying, not me, but God. I don't have what it takes. My strength is not enough. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Him to live life, the circumstances haven't changed radically. There's still wicked people around him that seem to have full pockets. It hasn't changed, but living life for his glory is made possible by this awareness that God is his strength. Because of God's presence, Asaph could confidently trust in God's protection and guidance, keep the eternal and the ultimate in front of him. Verses 18 to 20, there's a new awareness of the destiny of the wicked. Verses 21 to 22, a new awareness of himself. Verses 23 to 26, a new awareness of God and his care of the righteous. So we come to the climax in verses 27 to 28, Asaph's ultimate life perspective. Remember the psalm began with Asaph and his initial life perspective. Verses 1 to 3. Notice the contrast between those verses and what we have here. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I've made the Lord my refuge. So I can tell what all you do. Verses 1 to 3, we read about God's goodness. We see it here in verses 27 and 28. In verses 1 to 3, we, we, we saw Asaph's personal anguish. Here we see Asaph's personal trust. In verses 1 to 3, we have Asaph's perception of the prosperity of the wicked. And here we have Asaph's confidence in the ultimate judgment of the wicked. His envy has turned to hope. His disillusionment with God has been transformed into a celebration of God's justice and presence. God is at the center of his attention rather than his difficult circumstances being there at the center. Myopia is a visual problem that keeps people from seeing objects at a distance. People suffering from myopia can only see what's right in front of them. This is me. Without glasses or contacts, I have contacts. We cannot see where, they, they cannot see where they're going or what's on the distant horizon. They can just see what's up front. The psalmist tells us about the spiritual myopia he experienced. He couldn't see God's perfect love, mercy, and grace, his wisdom, his knowledge, his goodness, because he was only able to see those things that seemed right up close. Pleasant circumstances, health, prosperity. Consequently, in the psalm, Asaph faced an important crossroads. He was well acquainted with his theological foundation. God exists and God is good. He looked around and became envious of the wicked. His theology didn't seem to square with the hard facts of life. Within, he felt turmoil and unrest. He even wondered if he made a mistake by trusting God and obeying his expectations. What should he do? Should he abandon his faith and run with a shallow crowd that worships tangible and immediate success without God? Should he try to hold his faith and pretend that all is well when he's falling apart on the inside? Or should he come into God's presence? Subordinate his feelings about his dilemma, his pain, and his agony to what he knows to be true of his God. The wicked may have health, wealth, and worldly success, but remember they don't have God. God is with us, his people. Is God enough? Asaph asks. His answer is a resounding, he is indeed, praise God. So I want you to realize that Asaph ends up 
where he began, but better. He said it was not a passage about a person wallowing in doubt or someone overwhelmed by skepticism about God and his word. He had this theological foundation. He started with a fundamental belief about God's character and how he deals with people. It, but that belief was challenged by his life experiences. He allowed to have his life experiences get his eyes off of that great God and think about him from the perspective of his own challenges, the suffering of the righteous and the apparent prosperity of the wicked. And that challenge struck the very depths of Asaph's soul. He told us it almost became a knockout blow for him, knocking him off his feet. Have you ever been in a somewhat similar situation? About knocked off your feet by life's challenging circumstances? Whether you have or not, you will. But regardless, we all want to know his answer to an important question. How did he come to enjoy victory in this challenging situation? This is my summary. He, he stopped making his difficult circumstances the focus of his attention. He put his attention back on God's greatness and goodness. He realized once again that even in the midst of difficult and demanding circumstances, God is good and worthy of his total trust and reliance. That's why I started answering how are you questions with God is good. I was trying to force myself to think up to revel in who he is and what he does and his amazing character, his perfections. He never fails. He never betrays. He is an all-wise God who has a plan that I don't always understand. Even in the midst of difficult and demanding circumstances, God is good and worthy of his total trust and reliance. One last thing about Psalm 73. Notice with me the progression of personal pronouns in the psalm, in verses 1 to 12, those, those verses focus on they and them. The psalmist has placed his focus on them, the people and the circumstances around him. And that's what got him down because guess who he left out? God. Verses 13 to 16, the focus was I. The, focus, the, the psalmist looks to himself and does not like the comparison between his experience and that of the wicked. He's without hope. Verses 18 to 28, transition from the focus on I to the focus on you, the Lord God makes all the difference. So today I ask you, do you have a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Have you come to the point in your life where you realize you're weighed down with sin and you're, it's hopeless? You don't have a chance on your own. You're bound for eternity in hell. But there's a God in heaven who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the innocent who dies for the guilty, to die in our place and for our benefit, for you and for me. And if you'd repent of your sins and see that what Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary is absolutely sufficient to provide your salvation, you can rest, embrace that gift, and rest in his provision and have a heart that's transformed. For many of you who are believers, how are things going in your life? I don't know exactly what's going on in your life, but I do know that whatever the challenge might be, I can confidently say that God is the only ultimate answer to your and my struggles. We have an absolutely great God who is totally worthy of our trust in every circumstance of life. And friends, this is not a one-time deal. Every morning you get up, Praise God for who he is and what he does. Celebrate his greatness, his mercy, his love. Read a psalm that helps 
celebrate who he is. Because that enables us, that motivates us. I think I did this years ago in Deuteronomy in my mind, and it's a biblical deal. It's upward, inward, outward. I do think we look up and revel in who God is, and then there's the inward, our heart, our, the motivation of our heart is set on fire. We long to honor that God with our lives, and the overflow of that is outward. It's a, a life for his glory. It's a leaving hard, hard circumstances at his feet. It's having a transformed heart that enables us to live for his glory, minister well with a pure heart rather than a poisoned heart because we know he's good, whether we understand his plan or not. May God help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Psalm 73 and its clarity and for Asaph giving us a window into his life. And thank you that you do make all the difference that you are worthy of our trust. You're, you're unparalleled, incomparable. You show mercy, grace, and love. You're an all-wise God in whom we can trust. And I pray that because we want to live lives that point to you, that you would help us to keep our eyes on you first and see life's circumstances through that lens rather than being earthbound and just looking at things in our life and thinking badly about you. So Father, I, I, I put my own heart and your folks, these folks' heart in your hands to pray that you would help us to be men and women who are God-anchored, God-sufficient, God-enabled men and women resting in you in the midst of what life can dish out, remembering that you're the ultimate pleasure. You win. You give us grace and strength. Keep the eternal things ultimate in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.